0: Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is author and mental health clinician, Bernard J. Owens. He is a licensed behavioral health specialist and motivational speaker. He speaks from life experiences regarding depression, sexual, sexual, sexuality, identity, And breaking generational cycles to create a space of empathy towards helping others. He has a book that he's recently published called The Only Thing Wrong With You Is That You Think Something Is Wrong With You. Welcome to the Podcast, Bernard J. Owens. Welcome, brother.
1: Hey, thank you very much for having me.
0: Man, I'm excited to have you on because you know, you got a tech talk coming up, and there's a lot of things that you talk about. And one of those is the uh, the struggle of mental anguish, setting boundaries, and also your struggle with suicidal um, ideations. Can you can you talk to us about the genesis of all that?
1: Um, for, as it relates to the book, you mean specifically, or my own my own story? Your own your own that? story. So uh, undiagnosed childhood depression at around eleven years old. I had my first suicide attempt overdosing uh, on on medications, and uh, again, that went untreated, that depression, after I was released from the hospital for the physical symptoms, and at 21, I attempted uh, death by suicide again, and was unsuccessful and began uh, mental health treatment with a counselor at the university that I was attending, Michigan State University. When you look um, back,
0: what were some of the thoughts, ideas, emotions that were contributing to that first suicide attempt?
1: Wow, the first one, I just felt overwhelmed. I felt helpless. I sense, I felt an overwhelming sense of um, uh, that I was being unproductive. I was living in public housing with a single mom at the time and just felt like I should have been doing more to contribute to household expenses or better quality of life or whatever, uh, which at at this age sounds ridiculous for an 11 year old to feel that way. But that's what I was experiencing at the time and uh, just overwhelmed by all those emotions.
0: Yeah. You live in Virginia. You're from Virginia, right?
1: Uh, Right now I live in Washington, DC, but I work in, in Virginia. But uh, when the, when the first occurrence happened at 11, I was living in public housing in in San Francisco, California.
0: Oh, San Fran, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, It's interesting because when I was nine, I told my mom I wanted to end my life at 40. And at the age of nine, I felt this overwhelming sense of responsibility to also contribute. I I recognize how hard my mom, you know, single mom working two jobs. And I just felt like, man, if she didn't have me, she wouldn't have to work so hard, you know? And I, yeah. So I always had a job. Where do you think that message came from? That because not every kid has that overwhelming sense of responsibility like
1: i gotta contribute i gotta give more Mm -hmm. for me i know i know part of it came from i remember when my parents divorced my dad said to me and and it may have just been in passing but he did say to me well you know you take care of your mother you're the man of the house now and somehow i internalized that at uh, i don't know six seven eight years old and carried that Long into my adult uh, adulthood, my mom passed away. It'll be a year in September, uh, a year on September 23rd. And all the way up until then, I felt like, you know, the, that that was my responsibility. I was the man of the house. And of course, you know, things got much better. And, and how I saw myself as the quote man of the house changed dramatically once I started working on myself and healing. But that doesn't leave you, particularly if you're a child of a single mother. And I, I would dare to say it's a almost unique feeling, I think, that Black men feel for caring for our mothers. We have a special connection, at least from my context. I can't speak for for other ethnicities, but we have a special connection with our moms in a lot of cases.
0: Why do you think it's uh, about more Black men? Why do you think it's race, race and gender related?
1: I don't know necessarily that it's race related. I do think that it's gender related. I know I can say my mother was my first love, um, you know, in, in, in the sense that from a child's standpoint, and much like I see that my sister and my dad have a very special bond and relationship, I know that I had the same bond and relationship with my mother uh, in in that way. And I think that's just the way it happens. And I, I I won't say that there aren't anomalies of that, but in my experience, it has been that young men, boys, have a a special affinity towards their mothers, and 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 vice versa.
0: Yeah, I definitely felt protective of my mom and you know, wanted to do whatever I I mean, part of it was also a fear of my mom, mm-hmm. you know, it was like mm-hmm. have the house cleaned, um, you know, uh, you know, not skipping school, just making sure I wasn't uh causing any trouble for my mom, mm-hmm. but also this like nurturing one to take care of, make sure everything um that she was happy, you know, whatever I could do to to kind of please her, but also to not you know uh capture the wrath of Mm, uh, of her mm -hmm. being upset and i don't know if there was kind of that uh mix for you where on one side like you want to make your mom happy and 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 be responsible on the other side maybe uh, was there like also a fear of your mom was she punitive in that way
1: No, my mom was not. She was was very loving and nurturing, but it's the same. You and I are talking about the same things when you talk about a fear. Mine just happened to be disappointment. I didn't want the idea of letting her down created a lot of anxiety for me. The idea of letting our family down created a lot of anxiety for me. Um, And and maybe that parallels to what you were saying about the punitive anxiety that you were experiencing, Um, but definitely um, taking on responsibilities that weren't. To be taken on by someone so young, the adultification of, of kids.
0: Yeah, I think that's something that's not really talked about. Uh, uh, I think, especially like when a, and you're in a single parent household, that mm-hmm. that need of all right, I'm an adult now, and people are telling you you're an adult, and you got to grow up quickly. And but at the same time, you know, they're they're treating you like a kid, also, like you got to be at bed at this time, and you know, so you're getting these mixed messages of on one hand. You're the adult, you're the man of the house, uh, but you don't get man uh privileges, right? right. Like you, you can't right. just do whatever you want and say whatever you want. Um, and so I, I think that creates a
1: lot of internal conflict. Did you feel that? I did. I certainly did feel that internal conflict. And I'm, you know, I, Leo, I'm always of the mindset now, particularly that my mom was doing the best that she could do at the time, right? And so um for me, it's been important that I not place blame on on my mom, but when you talk about conflicted feelings definitely my mom when they, my parents divorced like any other single woman dated and i was constantly in physical and uh verbal fights with these men from 11 10 12 years old because i saw that they were taking advantage of her either they would borrow money and not give it back or disrespect our household or didn't have any respect for me as her child and those things and so there, there was confusion there where I'm not an adult, but there are adult expectations placed upon me. Um, and also, uh, the expectations of a child were, were placed upon me in terms of what I was supposed to be doing as a kid, sitting at the kid's table or whatever that looks like. Uh, so yeah, it, it can be confusing. I will say that I am, in many ways now, like much of my journey, happy about some of that because I'm a pretty responsible 52-year-old, and I also have the um, ability to switch up and have joy and playfulness, but I know the difference. So I can handle my business because I've been handling business since I was 10 or 11, but I can also uh, have fun. And, and so I think in a lot of ways, become an adult at a young age for me was uh, an asset, you know?
0: It's true. Cause I've met people who, um, <laughs> have never really been able to be responsible or to mm-hmm. have fun. It's like they're either one or the other. And, right. it, and we do kind of grow up with that ability to have fun, be playful, and also, like you said, handle our business. But what was your relationship with your father like at this moment? Because you said your parents divorced. Mm-hmm. Did, that, did that fracture the relationship between you and your father?
1: For a long time, it, it ebbed and flowed. You're able to, in my case at least, romanticize the parent that's not there. But at the same time, <laughs> you know, you're giving, you're, I'm giving my mom a hard time, but letting my dad off the hook because, well, he's not there to see the ins and outs. But at the same time, having resentment uh, at a young age toward my dad, because while we're living in public housing, my dad's having a different experience. He's a, you know, was a, a blue collar worker, making good money, living in Michigan and those things. And I was confused as to how, you know, we were living in a certain socioeconomic status and he was living in another one and how he, in my mind, didn't to want to contribute to that. Now, I will fast forward as an adult. I've had conversations with my dad and to hear his side of things really helped me heal. Because if you're only going off one side, you don't have the full picture.
0: Absolutely. And, and I, I, before we dig into his side, you know, going back to your first attempt, what were some of the things that helped you to move past or move through that? And what were some of the things that were supposed to help you but didn't if you could even remember back that far
1: yeah that's been quite a while because i'm 52 now but i know at 11 some of the things that helped me through or some of the things i chronicle in my book which were music television isolation uh you know i i i I barricaded myself in my room for much of the time I would skip school and come home and watch old reruns of Wonder Woman the Bionic the Bionic Woman the six Million Dollar man bewitched any fantasy show the The Incredible Hulk all of the fantasy shows of the 70s and 80s just to try to escape and um so that was a coping mechanism at, at 11 and that ser- serves me even today you know I'll, I'll isolate sometimes and just watch TV with a plate of food but it's not because I'm depressed it's just a way of de- you know decompressing Uh, So that's how I got along then. And like I said, it was undiagnosed. So it wouldn't be until later uh, in my 20s or so that I was provided the diagnosis of generalized anxiety and depression, major depressive disorder, and, you know, and started to heal from that.
0: And What did that healing, what did the depression look like in your 20s? How did that differ than when you were, you know, 11
1: years old? In my 20s, it looked like perfectionism. I had Mm -hmm. to have everything perfect. My hair had to be perfect. My skin had to be perfect. My teeth, my clothes had to be ironed. I had to get good grades. I couldn't let anybody down. I couldn't say the wrong thing. I had to joke a lot around friends to make everybody think that I was happy. That's how it played out for me. And it's such a relief to not have to be perfect anymore. (laughs) Uh, So that's, that's how it showed up for me, at least. Just trying to maintain this veneer of everything being perfect when it wasn't.
0: You talked about once you got the diagnosis, then that was able to help you heal and move forward. What did that look like for you besides the realizing that you didn't have to be perfect? Were there medications involved, therapy? What kind of therapy?
1: Yes, a lot of talk therapy. Uh, And what the diagnosis did for me was awesome because then I could put a name to what I was feeling. I could put a classification to what I was feeling. And I will say for anybody listening, it's important for me. Then, as it is now, working in the mental health field, that the diagnosis is not who you are. You know what I mean? Like, your diagnosis is not, I'm Bernard, I'm not depressed. I I may have depression, but I'm not depressed. Uh, I may have anxiety, but I'm not anxious. Those types of things are important to to delineate, or else I feel like you start to take on the identity of those things. and, And that's not what a diagnosis is for.
0: Yeah, is that something that you've come to learn through therapy?
1: Yeah, I've, I've come to learn that through therapy and in working with my own clients now in a, in a capacity. You know, I often say because there's so much stigma around uh, mental health challenges, you know, if you broke your leg, Leo, you'd go to the emergency room, they'd set it, they'd give you medication and you'd be uncomfortable but you go on with your life as it healed. The problem is we don't do that sometimes with mental health challenges. There's so much stigma um, that we, we won't go see a doctor about the the quote unquote broken leg that needs to be reset a little bit of medication so you can heal. We don't do that with ourselves sometimes when it comes to uh, mental health.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And part of your mental health journey was this exploration through sexual, sexuality identity. Can you tell us more
1: about that? I mean, I identify as a gay male. uh, And so with the perfectionism came a lot of pressure. Like how do I, be who I feel that I am and also not let other people down or let the veneer fall away of being perfect, right? So my struggle wasn't a tremendous one. I I think there are a lot of things in the zeitgeist now where people have different resources to lean on. Um, There's certainly more to the LGBTQ plus uh, alphabet than there was when I was uh, struggling with just my identity as a gay man, so I, I I can't say I understand all of it, but for me, it was just about coming to terms with who I was, and not, again, not letting other people down. What did you think would happen if you let other people down? The criticism, I think that's the whole. That's what. That's the power that stigma has. The criticism, the negative perception, um, and ultimately, right underneath all of that is I would no longer be lovable. If you get, if you cut to the core of it right i would no longer be worthy of love from the people who i loved because i would be seen as less than perfect
0: and what happens if you're no longer lovable
1: what happens if you feel like you're no longer lovable it, yeah. in, in, in my case was well then what's my reason for being on the planet and so it's both you know it goes back around to the suicidal ideation piece if i'm not lovable i'm not if i'm not worthy then why am i here and I will say that's not just in the image of people, not just letting my mother and father down or my grandparents down. It's also in the eyes of God. You know, no matter what you believe, if you believe in a higher power, if you're not perfect, this is my thinking at the time, how could God love me if other people don't love me just for being myself?
0: Mm, so were these some of the messages you felt like you picked up in a church?
1: Yeah, definitely. I remember going to several uh Several instances of going to church with different family members and hearing uh, negative things being said about same-gender couples, um, which is unfortunate, because as someone who's graduated from Emory University's Candler School of Theology, I now know from the text that that is not, you know, the, the Bible speaks about a lot of things, but somehow we often tend to focus on <laughs> on same gender relations and, and let the other stuff go from adultery to uh, touching pigskin, you know footballs and things like that. So that's a whole nother show. But you know, it it, it was helpful for me to to attend seminary and see that what I found uh, God's word to be about. You, you know, from, you a, said, from a Christian slant, I should say, if you identify as Christian as I do.
0: You know, that it's interesting because it, it, you mentioned how being in church and receiving those kind of, um, I don't know if you call it mixed messages, but messages that didn't seem to align with the lifestyle that you were living or that conflicted that you went into seminary school. Is that what you said?
1: Yeah, but I have to clear up when you said the lifestyle that I was living. I'm a kid. I'm not living anybody's lifestyle. I just know that the, the kid on the block, there's for some reason, I feel butterflies when I'm around him. That's that's all I know. So I don't know lifestyle and choices and and and, and all of those things. I just know what I'm feeling. And I know that when the pastor is preaching against that, saying negative things um, about same gender loving couples, that now I'm starting to have a conflict. Like, why do I feel butterflies when I see uh, Kevin down the street, but the pastor is making me feel like i um, disgusting? So those are the messages, I, and I think we need to be clear about that because when we use terms like lifestyle, an eight, nine, ten-year-old is not thinking about choices; they're just going with what they feel. You know?
0: Wow, that's powerful. I'm glad you cleared that up. You yeah. know, at the at the age of fifty, you said you're fifty-two now, correct?
1: Yep. Yep. Fifty-two. Are there
0: things that you or you're like I have to do these things on a daily basis or a weekly basis, or is there a, a routine that you've established? To maintain your
1: mental health, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I have a friend that calls it mental health hygiene. You know, hygiene like anything else. You take care of your body. You take care of your teeth. Hygiene practices. For me, everybody is different, but for me, it, it requires exercise at least four times a week. Um, it requires eating as healthy as I can. I, I'm I'm never going to be vegan or vegetarian. <laughs> That's the lifestyle. When you talk about lifestyles, I'll never be those things but I do try to incorporate fruits and vegetables. So those are two of the things. The other thing is, I to be honest with you, Leo, I don't deal with negative people or drama. And I've learned that when I see it coming my way, I don't have to say anything negative about them or get into it with them. I just have to make the choice to turn in the opposite direction. Um, so those things, You when you get to a certain stage and a certain level of healing, you know when something isn't right, what, when it's around you, um, whether it be the temperature in the room, or the way somebody's looking at you or, you know, anything, you, you pick up on vibes and you know what works for you and what doesn't. So I would say the biggest thing is separating myself from toxic people or people who have toxic traits. I always tell clients, if you've got a friend and that friend is always talking negatively about other people, you can best believe they're going to be talking about you negatively someday. And your warning is seeing them talk about other people. That's your intuition saying to you, oh, maybe this isn't the best relationship for me.
0: Where do you usually feel that, you talked about, you know, you picking up the vibe, the temperature of the room, Mm -hmm. where do you Mm -hmm. tend to sense that in your body? Where do you feel that in your body where you're like, ah, this is not uh, a relationship I want to foster or be around or a space I need to separate myself from?
1: Well, the older I get, the better it is intuitively, but it's a, it's a, it's a, the hairs on the back of my neck or it's, it's, it's that type of stuff. It's, It's usually a physical sensation, right? Like a queasiness to the stomach or you know, you, you, give, you, you just give a second look to, why would you say something like that about this other person, right? And And what we do is we tend to excuse those types of things and go on in relationships with these people. I'll tell you quickly, I had a partner for a while who was addicted to substances. And he was in the car one day with a glass of wine in his hand, driving the two of us someplace. And I remember thinking, Oh wow! Like who? Who drives around with a glass of wine in it? No, no, no. He would never do anything to get us hurt or in trouble. Okay, yeah, I'm just tripping, right? So that's what we do. We know first of all that that ain't right, and then we try to rationalize our way out of it. So when you see those two, when you see those two things going on, the ebb and the flow, you already know what the, what what decisions need to be made.
0: I absolutely love that. Are, are there ways you talked about your mom has passed away? Are there ways that you Honor her or carry on her her message or the relationship uh
1: post posthumously, posthumously? I've never used that word before uh, yes no I can <laughs> yes, there are ways there are several ways, and I'll tell you brother, talking to you today is one of those ways. My mom passed on september twenty third and I made my mission to publish the book and to talk about how I was able to work on our relationship and I sat a year ago in the room with my mother and slept on the floor next to her and held her hand until she passed. And I would not have been able to do that had I not done this work, had we not done this work together. And when she passed, of course, I was deeply sad, but I had no remorse and no regret because I had been everything and I had done everything in my power to make her life comfortable, particularly in those last few years when she couldn't care for herself. So that's the power of this work. That's the power of working on yourself and taking care of these relationships like uh, pruning trees or, or cutting the grass. So, you know, it, when you do the maintenance, everything is so much better. Everything looks better. Everything feels better. Everything grows better. The problem is sometimes we avoid the maintenance that it takes to make things that their absolute best.
0: Yeah, you know, we just moved into a house. This is my first house. And every mm-hmm. morning I, I wake up and I do like a perimeter check. I just walk around <laughs> the house to see yeah. if there are any spider webs, any leaves, <laughs> just checking on any ants, right. you know, I mean because it's it's incredible what can accumulate in 24 hours. Sure. And 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 so, you know, when we talk about mental health hygiene, it's like, yeah, I got to do this again. I got to journal again today. I got to pray, I got to meditate, mm-hmm. I have to exercise and and all those different mm-hmm. things. When your mom passed away, was there a a a release Or a a buoyancy that came with it? Let me me temper that question. Mm -hmm, Meaning, mm -hmm. I've read stories of people who they Mm -hmm. love their mom so much that, you know, they want to make them proud and happy. And then when Mm -hmm. the parent passes away, they feel almost this freedom to now explore other areas or other things in their life that maybe they weren't comfortable with doing while their mom was alive. Did you have that experience at all?
1: Oh man, you're a spot on, Leo. Uh, if we, if you had spoken to me on September twelfth, twenty twenty two, that person last year would have felt tremendously guilty about doing anything for themselves. Be it publish a book, be it be on TV news, be it give a TED talk, I would have moved slowly, moved towards those things, but I wouldn't have executed them with the efficiency and with the power that I'm doing now a year later. Because I would have felt in the back of my mind, I don't know if I could have articulated it then. How can I do these wonderful things when my mom is sick? How can I be amazing, excellent, and outstanding when my mom is living, you know, near poverty level? Like, how, how is that possible? What kind of what kind of person am I to soar and be the best that I could be if people that I love aren't doing as well as I would have liked them to to be doing? And so that's that is something that I think about. Not consciously, but I think the great thing about me doing the work with my mom, as I mentioned earlier, is I can feel her all around me. It's, it's, it's the ease with which I move through the world now that I can feel like it's not just me; it's something else is guiding and moving me. So I, I know that you know, doing this work is is honoring her, and I, I don't. I know that I couldn't have done it at this level when she was still here. And I'll add this quickly: when I think about, I don't have, you know, I'll go back to eleven year old. When I think about I don't have my mommy anymore because my mommy has passed away, and it happens all the time since last year, and I start to feel sad. You know what makes me feel better, Leo? When the adult, when the 52-year-old says, Bernard, her body was failing. She was sick. She was in pain. She was in a bad way, and now she's not in any of those ways any longer. I instantly feel better. When I think about what would have been better for my mother and not what would have been, been, been better for me. Everything changes. And so these are the things that happen when you do this work, when you do the therapy, when you do the journaling, when you take care of your mental health hygiene, you gain a clarity that helps you navigate the difficult times.
0: I love that. Going back to your father, you, you shared that once you heard his side of the story,
1: mm-hmm. then
0: it kind of gave you a, a 360 perspective as to what was happening. What was the story that you held before? And then how did the your, your father's side of the story change things for you? Okay. The,
1: the story that I held before at eleven, we'll use that as an example, is that my dad has a great job living in Detroit, coming from middle class parents, and drives a Cadillac, and everything's great with his new wife. And I am living in public housing <laughs> with his ex wife, uh, and I and we don't know if we're going to have food tomorrow. That that's the story I'm running in my mind because you know some of those facts are true. He had those things, but it, the 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 story and the facts are two separate things. So when I sat down with my dad at at 21 after the second suicide attempt, my dad was the first one to rush to Michigan State where I was to be with me, to to try to figure out what was going on, right? And it occurred to me like, oh, no, if he didn't care, why would he come? You know what I mean? Those are the things that started to unravel. And so in the book, I talk about how I had some honest conversations with my dad, just like I did with my mom, excuse me, and got his side of the story of things and gained a lot of clarity. And one of the first things he said to me was... You don't know what it's like for a man to have his kids ripped away from him and taken to another state because he and the mother of his children aren't getting along. You don't know what it's like to not be in communication with your children. You don't know what it's like to, you know, and he just went on and on and his eyes welled up. And I was like, I got it. I got it. I got it. But until you do the work to go back and ask the other parent, you're just going off your assumptions in your narrative of what you think was going on at the time.
0: Wow. Did you two hug after that? Or was it like a fizz bump induces
1: <laughs> No, no, no. He he's he's pretty good at giving me, you know, a hug or, or whatever like that. He's never had a problem with that. But it was interesting because after that conversation, now I can't get him to stop calling me. He calls me all the time <laughs> and gets and gets upset when I don't return his call. As a matter of fact, when I call my daddy now, and I still call him daddy at 52, he's only 20 years older than me. When I call him now, the first thing he says is. Uh, yeah, there was a time where you wouldn't return my calls if I left you a voice message. I was like, yeah, that was about 12 years ago. Can we move on? But each call, he has to start with that. You know what I mean? And it's really kind of cool. I really enjoy him. And I've learned to accept my dad just the way that he is. And that's, again, in the book, <laughs> you know, that that's, that's some powerful stuff. When you can just accept people how they are, man, your life becomes easier. If I can just accept that every time I call my dad, he's going to bring up the fact that I didn't blah, 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 blah then we can move on into the conversation because I already know that's part of it, right? So, yeah. It's yeah, like watching a list...
0: sitcom where you know, <laughs> all right, Kramer's just going to, you know, storm in the house. He's not going to knock. Exactly. He's not going to ring the doorbell. This is
1: just exactly. who he is. This is his character. And then, and then when you watch it and Kramer doesn't storm into the house, you think, oh, Kramer's must be sick. Is everything okay with Kramer? Like, you know what I mean? So it's all good, man. I, I, I love my dad. And I love him just the way that he is, uh, you know and nobody's perfect and i i just appreciate that that i still have one parent around you know
0: yeah and I, and and as you're sharing that story cuz my mom does the same thing she's like you know bringing up the fact that uh, now i'm just not now starting to call her instead of her mm-hmm. having always called me and i'm like mm-hmm. yeah mom it's been 20 years mom, i've been i've been calling you but uh but as i hear you sharing your story with your father it makes me realize that my mom is really saying like that hurt it yeah. hurts when I call and you don't, you know, pick up or mm-hmm. respond mm-hmm. in a, in a timely manner, but mm-hmm. I don't think, I don't think they have the the vocabulary of the language for that, or maybe I even have the awareness of what's happening right. at the emotional level. Right. Um, yeah. You, you yeah. know, I, I, go
1: ahead. I, have, I was going to say, I have to, I have to tell people when we look at our parents, like I said, my parents are only 20 years older than me and I can't imagine what it would be like, having a kid at 20 years old, being married and having a kid. So here's what I'm setting up. The expectation that I have for these 20-year-olds is completely unrealistic, first of all. And second, as a 20-year-old, I'm in therapy, I'm in school. My parents were just two working folks trying to get by with a kid, right? And so compare that's like comparing apples to oranges. So to expect my parents to be uh, as emotionally mature as I was at 20, having been in therapy, et cetera. To impose that on them in their 20s is like expecting George Washington to know what Wi-Fi is. Well, George, why would George Washington know what Wi-Fi is? It wasn't part of his upcoming, right? So that's the part, again, where we got to let people off the hook and give them a chance, you know?
0: I I love it. Is there any part of your, your journey, your story that, you know, from your book, the only thing wrong with you is what you think? That is that you think something is wrong with you that we haven't discussed?
1: Well, you know, we talked a lot about depression and suicide and anxiety and things like that. And I, I do want to add that the, the only thing wrong with you is that you think there's something wrong with you. A couple of light light moments from the book. One is the title is a direct result of my paternal grandmother, my dad's mom, getting on my case one day because I was being young and neurotic and complaining about, uh, you know, and asking Talking to myself, really, like, what the hell is wrong with me? Why can't I blah, 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 And my grandmother saying to me pointedly in my face, the only thing wrong with you is that you think that there is something wrong with you. Ain't nothing wrong with you. Now go cut the grass, right? And so it was that type of no nonsense. Uh, let me just say it. No nonsense. Black woman talk. God bless black women. I love them for cutting to the chase. Stop all this bullshit. Ain't nothing wrong with you go out there and cut the grass and get on with the getting on, right? And, And something about that stuck in my mind. And so that's why I titled the book that. And then the second thing is the book is kind of fun because I chronicle the stories and the lessons, most importantly, in my life with music that was happening in the time. And if it wasn't happening right at the time that I have it in the book, that's the sentiment that comes about when I think about what was going on. From Janet Jackson to Vanessa Williams, The Right Stuff, to In Vogue, to... Uh, the Jackson 5 to, you know, Gladys Pips. All of those songs and quotes from the songs are in the book throughout.
0: Okay, so I, I got a random question for you. Sure, sure. Okay, because I like to play music in the morning when I shower, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. I like a little uh, afternoon music, and then there's always, but they are always different genres, different vibes, and then there's yeah. something I like to, you know, I, I like a little coffee shop chill vibe okay. in the evening when me and my girl playing card games. Uh what are you listening to in the morning for, you know, around breakfast or in the shower just to get you going? What's at lunch and you then what's at dinner or what's in the evening? You
1: really want to know? What, what yeah, yeah, I mean, really yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Give okay. us one us so, for each one. So, right now, right now in the morning, I'm listening to, um, <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this at 52. Right now, I'm listening to Cardi B and Magda Stallion Bongos. Uh, I just, I love wordplay and some of the wordplay in, the, in these songs is just incredible, but you have, you know, if you have an ear for it. So that's what I'm listening to. <laughs> Usually some ratchet hip hop to get me started in the morning. Uh, if I do listen to music in the afternoon, it might be a little bit more of that just to keep me going through the day so I don't get that slump. And then in the evening, I'm listening to Sade, Anita Baker, Tony Braxton, Voice to Men, a lot of old school stuff that just kind of gets me settled in.
0: Man, Sade, can, I mean, can we get another Sade album? Timeless. Can timeless, I just, for, she she doesn't promote, she ain't on social media. Yeah. She's one of the few artists when she drops an album, I just get it. I just
1: buy but you it. you know what? That's a lesson for us all, man, in life. I, I, I don't know what kind of car you drive, but it's like a V8 engine. A VA engine doesn't have to tell you it's powerful. You just lightly tap on the gas and it moves. It doesn't announce it. It doesn't make a lot of noise. It doesn't rumble. And that's the same thing with people who are solid, like like Sade, musicians like that. They don't have to tell you because you're going to come to them. You know that they have power and what they do and what they put out. So, you know, I just respect it, man, if that analogy makes sense to you at all. But yeah, I just love it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Is there anything else that from your journey that we haven't discussed that you think would be a valuable uh, value to the listeners?
1: Yeah, man. I I love what you're doing and I appreciate it. And I just want to tell your listeners, like, I'm just going to be honest. There is nothing special about me. There's something unique about me and beautiful in the eyes of God, but there is nothing special. And I'm telling your listeners that because a lot of times we set things up and we put people on pedestals and look to them saying, well, they had this advantage or, well, they had that. Everybody has it within them to dig deep and make some changes, but you got to be willing to make the change. And I saw something interesting on my phone today where someone was talking about sometimes people who want help are presented with help, but because they're able to get attention by not seeking help, they're more inclined to crave that attention. And I, does that make sense to you? Like I have a friend who's always complaining about his sinuses, but you'll say, hey, here's a Zyrtec or here's some sinus medicine. You want to take it? No, I'm not going to take it. But he just com- completely complains about his sinuses all the time. And it occurred to me, you just like everybody coming to see if you're okay when you're having sinus issues. It makes, it makes you feel good. So that's something to keep in mind. Like, are you ready to do the work of being well, or are you really just like the side effects of people circling around and showing you attention? And if the latter is the case, that's fine too. But own it and know which way you want to go because you're responsible for your own life in the end.
0: I love that. The side effects of attention. Wow. Mm-hmm. That, that's going in the title right there.
1: Yeah. Um
0: penultimate question. I always imagine sure. there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill mm-hmm. yourself, what would you say to them, Bernard?
1: I would ask them, is killing yourself what you really want to do, or is it just your way of alleviating the pain? Because those are two different things. I know in my own case, I really just wanted the problems to be solved. I didn't have answers to solving the problems. And the pain that was being caused by that, I thought the only relief I would have would be ending my own life. So, those are two different things. And so, you know, everybody has the right to do what they want to do. And of course, I don't want to see anyone hurt themselves. But I do want us all to be honest about why it is that they're thinking and feeling that way. Because if it's a problem that needs fixing or addressing, work on fixing it. If you got the courage to kill yourself, you got the, the courage to stick in there and fix this problem.
0: Last question. Yes, sir. What are
1: you looking forward to in the next 24 hours? In the next 24 hours, I'm looking forward to eating a huge pizza in bed and watching TV and then going to rehearsal for this TEDx that I'm doing here in Atlanta. That'll be uh, on September 16th. We're recording on September 16th.
0: Wonderful, man. Good luck. Make sure, our listeners, you go out, get the book. The only thing wrong with you is that you think something is wrong with you. I wish I could say that in like uh uh, the the old black woman's uh, voice Because <laughs> not now I hear
1: I... <laughs> you hear it you hear you can hear my grandmother can't
0: you yeah what's her what's you her can... name what's grandma's name
1: my my grandmother's name was Naomi Owens and really if you listen the only thing wrong with you is you think something's wrong with you from her perspective when she yeah. was talking to me it was like cut all this bullshit yeah get out of your head and go outside and cut the grass I ain't got time for this you know right. what I mean yeah so yeah 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 it's get out your head it's like
0: get out your head and get into your body. You yeah, know, get out your head. Accept yeah, yourself for
1: where you are. You know that you are perfect and keep it moving.
0: Mm. Uh, thank you, Bernard, for joining us. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you calling to get help. Call the 988 or any of the 800 numbers. You can chat, talk, text. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Bernard.
1: Amen. Thank you, Leo.